This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. On the Monday after the completion of the 1987 AJC Autumn Carnival, high-profile bookmaker Bruce McHugh made a few relevant phone calls which by the end of the day would set tongues wagging throughout the racing industry. After 25 years as a bookie in Sydney, Bruce McHugh was handing in his licence. His betting duels with Kerry Packer over the previous five years had generated turnover never seen before on Sydney racetracks. As an example, Bruce's turnover over the four days of his last autumn carnival was $100 million, courtesy largely of Kerry Packer. These were undreamed of figures for a bloke who started his bookmaking career at age 21 working at Bulleye, Hawkesbury and Penrith Trots, fielding on the away meetings. Bruce is now 76. He still has a few business interests, including the ownership of the thoroughbred stallion Arlington, but in the main, he and his wife Charlene are living the quiet life. There's plenty of family interaction with daughters Tiffany and Angela and son David, who between them have provided the McHughes with six grandkids. It's a delight to catch up with Bruce McHugh on the podcast. Bruce, thanks for your time. Great to talk. Thank you very much, John. You've given a great introduction there. You couldn't call yourself an obsessive racing fan these days, but you still watch quite a few on Sky Racing. John, it's pretty hard to get out of your blood. And uh, when it comes Sunday morning, it's inevitable that I'll turn the uh, the paper over to the racing page and uh, and just read things that I've got or I've had an interest in mm. and uh, I'm still interested in. You obviously follow the progeny of Arlington pretty closely. I spotted you at Randwick one day last year when one of his sons uh, won a tab highway race, a horse called Gordon's Leap. You cheered louder than anybody. Well, put it this way, if you're you're, uh, excited at a race course and you don't show it, I think there's something missing. Let me skip a couple of generations here and talk about your paternal grandfather, Jim McHugh, who came from England as a ward of the state in the 19th century. He became an apprentice jockey in Sydney and he did something pretty special, didn't he, in the saddle? Johnny was, um, my memory of him was he was just a beautiful man, had a very, very um, lovely attitude, but he was very deaf. And on my memory of him, he was very, very small. And I can only imagine that when he walked off the boat and they were trying to find places for uh, for orphans, uh, the only place he could get a job, I would imagine, would be in a stable because uh, he was he was very, very light um, and light-framed and he had the distinction of riding for his master, a horse called Robin Hood, in the Epsom in 1898. He was 13 years old. Uh, it was 33 to 1, so it probably wasn't considered a chance and I can only presume it jumped out 
and lead and because of its low weight and because uh, it probably did it easy in front, it won the race. And uh, Bill Whitaker, at a later time in my life, got me the photograph from the Herald on that day after or the day of the race and it showed uh, a photo of um, Jimmy McHugh in his racing silks and I couldn't believe how, how much he resembled my father. Um, and, uh, yeah, he wasn't – put it this way, he was never what you call a really success, but he trained horses all his life and, um, as I said, he was just a, a delightful person, unbelievably uh, but very deaf and um, and just a beautiful person. Well, Bruce, you mentioned your dad, Bill McHugh. He was also a bookmaker. He died in 1999 at age 84. And I'm proud to say I knew him very well, Bruce. He had a terrific temperament, much like his father, as you've just explained. And I never saw your dad without a smile on his face. John, he uh, he was a person that was very lucky in life. He very he had very little illness, and his one love was was racing. And uh, he did an engineering degree um, when he at night school after he left school, and eventually uh, had a, uh, a share in, in an engineering business. But his one love was racing, and. Um, it took him years to get a licence to work in the metropolitan area, but uh, from the time I was probably 11, 12, 13, uh, my memories of it were that of a Saturday morning he would get up at 3 or 4 o'clock, uh, meet up with his staff, and they would drive to uh, country race meetings, the other side of Bathurst and the likes, mm. and he would feel there on Sydney and Melbourne and uh, we would get home very, very late the, or early on the Sunday morning. Um, so he, he he certainly had a love of racing and he had a love of bookmaking, and when he eventually got into the flat at Ramwick, it didn't take him long before he became a paddock bookmaker and he finished his time as a rails bookmaker, but I've never seen him ever really concerned. He wasn't uh, – bad trots didn't worry him. Uh, as long as he could get to a race meeting and put up the prices for the next <laughs> event, he was up and running. You've mentioned the flats at Randwick, an historic landmark, and for those who are not aware, it was the infield area which attracted thousands of people in the good old days. It cost you five bob to get in. You could get a cheap feed. There were tote facilities and plenty of bookies and didn't it have some atmosphere? Oh, look, John, it was just a very, very interesting place because there were no videos in those days, so everyone in the flat could only listen to the races and the only thing we saw was the horses coming up the rise and uh, the last probably 100-odd metres uh, to get to the post. But there was there was a thrill in the air in every race at Randwick from the flat and uh, I think people then progressed. If uh, I, I know it was my habit when I was uh, underaged. Uh, if I backed a winner in the flat, I'd progress to the ledger and uh, <laughs> because you had the extra money. And if you really... 
had a reasonable win, you'd even go into the paddock at the extra cost. But <laughs> that's uh, that's a, a light years away. That's light years gone. Mm. The flat closed in 1976 for those interested. Uh, the buildings Goodness. were demolished and replaced by two or three feature lakes and a big fountain that bubbled away there for, for many, many years. It's probably still there. John, you've you've surprised me, and I didn't realise in 1976. Yep. Yep. Well, put it this way: in those days, it wasn't unusual to get crowds of a Saturday at, at most race meetings. I presume either side of fifty thousand. Mm. I know that when I was very young and before I was a bookmaker, when I went into the paddock. Naturally enough, a lot of people like myself gravitated to the betting ring, which was very, very, which was huge. And uh, when the race came about, everybody would gravitate to the front of the stand. Mm. And I can remember clearly um, moving with the people and thinking if I wanted to go back to the betting ring, I'd have no chance because the crush of people was such that everybody progressed to the front of the stand till the race was over and then progressed back to where they went, some to the betting ring, some to other places. But it was was just a... uh, it was a time in history that's probably never going to be repeated, but it, it was a beautiful time. It was a beautiful time, Bruce, and those of us that had the good fortune to uh, be a part of it will never forget it. Now, I've got to pay tribute here to a very special person in your life, a lady called Hilda Allen. She was your maternal grandmother, a great family woman, a great housekeeper, and... An illegal SP bookmaker (laughs) (laughs) at Auburn in Sydney, a Sydney suburb. That's right, and it brings back beautiful memories. And you've got to also remember, John, that SP bookies, even even SP betting was illegal, Mm. but it was condoned in a brackets. Um, (laughs) It was never – if you were – Wherever um, at a later time after being an SP bookie, it, it was mentioned when you went to get a job or, or something like that, it never came against you because um, they were just fulfilling a, uh, a part in society that, uh, that was being neglected because the only place you could have a bet was on course. And you've got to remember Australia's a very big place and most people could never get to a race course. And with the broadcast, which was a Saturday in particular, it was just um, the only sport in Australia at the time of a Saturday was racing. That's right. And and, uh, I can remember my grandmother had a shop in Northumberland Road, Auburn. It was a mixed business and she sold fruit as well. (laughs) And uh, of a Saturday afternoon, if I was in the shop behind the counter, people would, her customers would come in and those that wanted to have a bet would have the note of what the bet was with the money wrapped up in it and they would just <laughs> pass it across the counter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and she did that all her life to my memory. Mm-hmm. Well, Grandma always had a quid tucked away. You'd bite her for 50 quid or 100 quid every now and again. But when you were 17, you bit like a white pointer. You asked her for £4,800 
That was around about 1960. That was a lot of money, Mr McHugh. Well, it was, but, John, I I was buying a milk run. I'd just (laughs) left school. I was 17. And uh, in those, I think it's probably similar now. If if people had faith in you, and she was a, a... a lady who who uh, never spent very much money, and she had a very good business, both the shop and the and the SP. The other one, and, <laughs> yeah, and she and she never refused people. If people needed anything, she would always give them what they needed. And I was probably one of the one of the the beneficiaries because. Every time I got into trouble gambling, she was always the one that bailed me out. But I can say <laughs> that I never ever owed her money long term. It was no. uh, it, and, and the faith that her and my aunties had in me was such that uh, I never ever thought for a minute I'd never not be successful. It was even when I was gambling. There was never any thought that I'd fail, even though I, <laughs> even though I did go broke, and, uh, and it took me several months to pay off the debt. Yeah. But, uh, but John, I think when you're that age and you've got the world in front of you, and you know what you want to do, and and you know that you've you've got the capability of being able to do it, never ever knowing that I'd get to. The, the stage that I got to, but um, that's evolution. That that's um, when you get on a train, you don't know where it's going to stop. Mm-hmm. You were twenty-one years old when you finally took out a bookie's license. Was it hard to get, Bruce? The, the waiting list would have been a mile long in that era. No, during that era, John, I think it's still the same now. Firstly, you had to get a guarantee, which which you needed to apply for a licence. So, City Tats was uh, was the main guarantee at the time. Most of the bookmakers that I knew were members of City Tats Club, and they and with a guarantee, you'd I think you'd invest say two hundred pounds, and that would give you a guarantee of two thousand. And after you've got that guarantee, then you apply to either the Trotting Club or Greyhound Club or the uh, racing, I think it was um, Sydney Turf Club and the AJC were both independent, um, but the provincials were another independent body. And uh, wherever you could get a licence, you were then able to apply to work on the days that uh, they had race meetings. And um, that's that's how it all eventuated it wasn't hard to get a license in those days but it was very hard to get into the very good businesses such as the the uh, the Rose Hill Ramwick Warwick Farm and the Canterbury mm-hmm. um, that was um, uh, probably one of the uh, you had to wait at, at, yeah you had to, you had to wait and you had to prove yourself and also um, you had to be able to uh, to give the powers that be the confidence that uh, you'd be a uh, an advantage to their opportunity or their their operation on course. Well, you started at the trots at Bulleye and Hawkesbury and Penrith. What meetings were you fielding on? I was fielding on Sydney and Melbourne at the time, and it was just after. The teleprinter was introduced on course 
I think Arthur Browning was one of the people that instigated or was one of the instigators behind that so that if I went to Hawkesbury, I'd put up a, a set of prices on two boards, one Melbourne, one Brisbane, and as the prices came through on the on the phone, which was in, in the Braxis, the teleprinter, as we eventually knew it, um, I would put the prices up and there was as much interest in particularly Melbourne, as what there was in the locals in most cases because, um, as you remember, John, the last several pages of every paper was filled with racing information. Mm. It was – racing was far and away the biggest sport. The others, cricket and race uh, – cricket and football and other lesser-known lesser used sports, they all filled in behind. They never they never interfered with, with racing. Racing was the was part of our history. Mm-hmm. Television, of course, has brought those other sports to prominence we'd never dreamed of. Now Bruce, before we leave the trots, you were one of several well known bookies to work at Harold Park in the days of the big crowds. And it took you a while to get in there too. John, it did. It was a very lucrative licence. My father got in. Uh, that was the first major licence that he was able to to um, obtain and he used to go there for Friday night and naturally enough, me being um, a schoolboy, I'd go along just for the, uh, for the ride but um, after the trots were over and it was, as I said, it was a lucrative business, um, He'd get up the next morning and then head off to one of the country race meetings, no matter where it was, no matter how far. But Harold Park was the was the linchpin for his um, bookmaking business. Bruce, a lot of our listeners will be surprised to hear some of the big name bookies who fielded on the trots at Harold Park. Well, there were the two Waterhouses, Jack and and Bill, the the, the two brothers, and then you had uh, an uncle of mine uh, who was a very big trot bookmaker, uh, volume wise, was a fellow called John Allen. Mm. Um, there are other people. I, John, my memory's not not uh, not uh, bring them forward, but uh, there, there were. They were very big names in the bookmaking industry. It was it was it was the uh, par excellence as far as uh, trotting was concerned in Australia. And of a Friday night, I don't think very seldom they ever got less than twenty thousand people there. And uh, they had bookmakers in the flat and the ledger. And and uh, John, it was just a uh, it was just a uh, uh, an unbelievable spectacle, and it it had enormous following and enormous support. And uh, the the trainer drivers that were around in those days, I can remember Bird Alley, and um, he had a horse called uh, App App Mac yeah. App Map, and uh, then you had Percy Hall who had a horse called Rabans. Now I know most people wouldn't remember those because I was only a teenager when they were were racing, but uh, the the trotting trainers were as well known as what the jockeys and the racing trainers were. Oh, and they all had their fan clubs, Bruce. They'd come onto the track 
uh, introduced by the course broadcaster back in that era, Ray Conroy, and you'd hear That's a right. great cheer go up when oh, Percy Hall yes. was introduced or Alf yes. Phillips or, you know, all the greats, J.D. Watts, uh, Sutton <laughs> McMillan was driving there. Uh, That's right. In the, into the 1950s. Oh, it, was, it was a massive spectacle and, as you said, even in the middle of winter, there'd be ten or 12,000 oh. people there on the coldest night. John, I don't think even in the middle of winter there were many less than 20,000 there. Mm-hmm. You just had to get there. You wrap yourself up. It, <laughs> it was exciting. It was the place to be. And remember some of those beautiful horses. Like um, there was one horse that uh, I just can't bring to mind, but he was an odds-on favourite in this night and he, uh, he galloped off the mark or he was slow away, galloped off the mark, and he was last when they settled down and they were booing him when he went past the winning post the first time. He then went round the field and led and they were and they were cheering him for the last two sections which he won the race. <laughs> now how many times did you see that happen at, at Harold Park? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jeers became cheers. Exactly, but I remember that one vividly because being an odds-on favourite, it was expected to be thereabouts all the way. And when it was last, um, the ones, the people that were uh, had their hard cold cash on it, they were uh, they were pretty pretty unhappy, <laughs> and it all changed inside a lap. <laughs> Bruce, we're going to pause for a moment on the podcast to clear this commitment. Back very shortly. A catalogue of almost 200 horses will be offered for sale at the final Inglis auction of the year, the 2019 Ready to Race sale at Riverside Stables on Tuesday, October 22nd. All horses are two-year-olds, broken in and prepared by experienced horse people and presented for sale, literally ready to race. Each horse will undertake a breeze-up session, which is a gallop ending in a 200-metre sprint. Each breeze-up will be recorded, which will enable prospective buyers to get a gauge on a horse's action, size and potential ability. There'll be an additional breeze-up session this year at Eagle Farm in Brisbane on Monday, September the 23rd, and other sessions will be held at Cranbourne, September the 13th, Warwick Farm, September 20th, Taupo in New Zealand, September the 23rd, with a second session at Warwick Farm on Friday, October the 18th. The strength and quality of the English ready-to-race sale catalogue is unparalleled in Australasia. My special guest is former Leviathan bookmaker Bruce McHugh and he's talking about uh, his early days as a bookmaker on Sydney racetracks. Well, Bruce, you finally got a Guernsey on the flat at Randwick as your dad had been for a few years before that. Uh, You started betting on the locals on the Sydney races, then on the interstates, which was later uh, to become your, uh, your life's work. Yes, John, I, I suppose going to the races as a younger fellow and, and being a punter, I was always captivated or mesmerised by um, Jack Waterhouse and Arthur Browning and to a lesser degree um, Bobby Deverell, who were the rail bookmakers 
uh, in the metropolitan area uh, who worked on Sydney and Melbourne. And um, they had a very good reputation. And the interstate racing was as much part of of a day's racing at at any of the courses as anything else. And I I always was was captivated by these individuals. And I I suppose it formed in my mind that if ever I had the opportunity, that's the way I would like to go. And um, once I got my licence in the flat, uh, I served about 12 or 18 months there on the locals. I applied for the interstate and was granted a licence to work in the interstate. And uh, I worked my way up to, through the ledger and then through the paddock. And it was uh, time to throw up, throw up different things, John. It's interesting because on the rails there were these three bookmakers, as I've mentioned, and they'd been there for as long as I could remember. Mm-hmm. And there was – they were – in my estimation, if you'd have asked me, I'd have said, oh, they'll be here for another 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Well, would you believe that Bob Deverell, the youngest of the three, mm-hmm. had a heart attack and died? Yes, yeah. And I, I'd been in the paddock for a little while and, and my holdings had been had been uh, up up around the top and there were a couple of us that were, were probably uh, entitled to the position or, or were... Uh, were eligible for it, put it that way. And mm. uh, myself and Bobby Bland were put in, so they, they increased it from three to four and put the two of us on the rails. And so at a very young age, both Bob Bland and myself were rails bookmakers on the four metropolitan courses on Melbourne and Brisbane. And, um, and, John, that was a very exciting time, and I've got to say that uh, my whole life working at those four meetings, um, there was never a time when I wasn't looking forward to going to the races. It was always a thrilling time, and one never knew what was going to happen next. It was, uh, it was, uh, you know, punters came and came and went, but there, there was. There were characters in every regard at the race course, and um, it was it was a very very um, very very uh, exciting time. Exciting time in every way. Mm. It was so different then. Punters didn't have the start they've got today. Computer form and speed maps and a massive amount of information. Is it any wonder the bookies' numbers have dwindled the way they have in recent years? John, when I started, there were I, it was just before the uh, – or just after the, the legal eagles came into being and they were the first group that I can remember who actually found a way to take photographs of the races, say at the four furlongs, uh, the six furlongs and the start and the finish. And as a result, they were the first pe- group of people to actually be able to do what we call form. And as a result, um, before that, the punters were really up at, at it all in front of them because there was nothing to to really measure a horse on unless uh, you were tidying with a stable or, uh, and the like. 
but uh, nothing, there was never any way to gauge a horse's ability compared to an, another one. So I was one of the lucky ones that was a bookmaker during the period when the punters were in, more in the dark than they are now because in nowadays, once you've got a computer and you've got a, uh, 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 what do you call it, a, uh, a computer set up that, uh, measures horses against horses or compares mm. them. They are impossible. The, 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 the experts that are around now, they make a very good living out of just being form students and horses are no different to athletes. Whatever they can do, it keeps showing up exactly the same in form and if they put together and add the uh, the advantage of a good draw or a, a bad weight or something else or whatever else comes with it. And there are people out there now, as we all know, who have made absolute fortunes from being punters on horse racing. Well, Bruce, that brings the curtain down on part one of our special podcast interview. We're going to come back uh, shortly with part two. And uh, in this segment, we're going to elaborate on what Bruce McHugh himself terms the Packer era. The stallion representation at the English Ready to Race sale on October the 22nd is a who's who of the breeding industry. Better than ready, Nakoni, Brazen Bow, Not a Single Doubt, Deep Field, Rubik, Dundeal and Shooting to Win. And we've just scratched the surface. Add to that... Hinchinbrook, So You Think, Holy Roman Emperor, Spirit of Boom, I Am Invincible, Starcraft, Medagliadoro, Tavistock, More Than Ready, Written Tycoon, No Nay Never and Zoostar. Inglis again team up with Racing New South Wales by presenting the sale three days after the Everest. The timing will ensure the attention of world buyers who'll be focused on Sydney at Everest time. October 22nd is the date for the English Ready to Race sale at Riverside. <laughs> 